Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Have you noticed the importance of belonging? I'm sure you've noticed the importance of belonging. People have a great need and a great desire to belong. We do it, we, we end up belonging to things, to groups, without even thinking about it. We just, we end up connected in, in certain places, connected through interests or identity. And, and we talk about uh, belonging to certain groups. Sometimes we use that phrase, finding an identity or having a sense of purpose or being part of a team. Or there's other phrases that talk about belonging. People look to belong at work. Uh, certain groups within groups at work or, or just the work that they do in general. Uh, they identify with that that trade or that industry. Uh, people belong in families, obviously, or through recreation, like sports, like who's your team type of thing. There's a belonging there. Or, or because of topics, people take up certain topics. Sometimes you wonder if that topic is even really meaningful to them or if it really has to do with just wanting to belong to a group and so they take up a certain topic. Even today, you have victim groups. People belong to victim groups, and, and they identify themselves in that way at times. And certainly, people belong in the church, right? Look at us. We're a local church. And this isn't all bad. It's not bad to want to belong. It's not bad to belong to a group. It has so much to do with how the Lord has made us. And so let me repeat it. If you have a desire to belong somewhere... That's not bad. It's good. It's right. In fact, it'd be a greater problem if you had zero desire to belong anywhere. Usually that's indicative of tremendous hurt and perhaps bitterness. It's not a problem to want to belong somewhere. It's not a problem to belong somewhere. The real question is, what do we end up belonging to and why? Why do we want to belong to that group? Why do we end up belonging to that group? Those are the kind of questions we need to ask sometimes. Now, today we begin an eight-week series on biblical fellowship. We call uh, this course on biblical fellowship, we call it the experience course. It is part of our membership process. So as Quay pointed out, the explore course, that 10-week course. Well, after that, we do the experience course. And the experience course is really an orientation to our small groups. We have a system of small groups as a church where we try to be intentional in our fellowship. And by the grace of God, I think it's very effective. It's not perfect, but it's very effective. We're very grateful for our small group leaders. And this course is meant to be an orientation to, to help people understand why we do it. We teach on biblical fellowship and they give a little taste of what it's like. And we teach on these principles of biblical fellowship. Where does fellowship come from and what is fellowship and what does it entail? Today, we're going to begin teaching through these on Sunday mornings and this is our first session, Gospel-Centered Fellowship. Some of this material should re, uh, it, it should be familiar to many of you. You should remember some of it. At least I hope you do remember some of it. But we'll come by way of reminder as well. Let me capture what we're after in this sermon today with, with this. Belonging to one another begins with belonging to Christ. Belonging to one another begins with belonging to Christ. You see, fellowship with one another... Relating to one another as Christians, 
has a prerequisite. And we shouldn't make a mistake. It's not simply available to just anyone. People outside of Christ should be able to identify that we have something together that they don't share in yet. We want them to share in it, but they don't have it yet. And it might sound strange to say it's not just available to anyone because that sounds a little bit exclusive, doesn't it? Or a lot exclusive. But in reality, let's, let's be real. Let's connect to reality. Belonging to anything requires that lines be drawn. In order to have belonging, there must be inclusivity and exclusivity. Any group, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, a good group or a bad group, it it draws its lines of inclusion based on certain criteria that determine whether someone is part of that group or not. That's not just Christianity, although it's certainly true of Christianity. It's true of every group. For instance, for something as simple as being a fan for a sports team. So let's say someone here is a Dallas Cowboys fan. You know, we know immediately they have bad character and judgment. You know, we're, we're sad for them. They belong to that group. I'm just kidding. It's fine if you're a Cowboys fan, I guess. But even, even to be a fan of a team, right? You need, the, the, whole, the, the whole idea is you need to have an affinity for that team. And that's all. I mean, that's really all it takes, right? And anyone can declare their affinity for any team. But, but nonetheless... There's a belonging at that point, and in the moment you belong to that group, you kind of get excluded from certain things. So you really can't be an Eagles fan and a Cowboys fan. I'm sorry. They're exclusive to each other. But take something else. Take something as broad as belonging to the human race. Everyone belongs to that, right? Yeah. However, it does require that you don't behave as an animal, right? I mean, if someone were to murder other humans then they end up isolated from the rest of humanity, hopefully at least through jail. So to belong to the group of humans, you need to be born human, (laughs) but you also must not harm the group. And with Christians, and then drilling down into the local church, you enter the group by belonging to Christ. That's where it all begins. See, belonging to one another begins with belonging to Christ Jesus. If you don't belong to Christ, you can't have fellowship. You can't have fellowship with other believers. Belonging to one another begins with belonging to Christ. So let's build it out a bit. First of all, we can see that everything begins with Christ Jesus. And you already got that sense from the introduction. But but remember this for a Christian. Everything, for us Christians... Everything begins with Christ Jesus. It's not just fellowship. For the Christian, every single thing begins with our Lord Jesus. And and, and really, you know, the truth is that that's true for everyone. It's true for everything in this universe. Whether a person bows the knee to Christ or confesses the name or not, everything begins with Christ. But at least for those of us who are called by His name... Let us acknowledge, whether it's acknowledged in the world or not, and it's not, but let us at least acknowledge that everything begins and ends with Jesus the Christ. Let me give you a couple of passages. First John, or rather, John chapter 1, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. 
So even the world, everything in the world was made through him. It begins with Jesus. And then Romans eleven thirty six, and of course there are other passages as well, but look at this one. For from him and through him and to him are, are all things from him, through him, to him, begins, ends, middle, Jesus Christ, to him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Now, for the one who claims Christ Jesus, that kind of sets some things in perspective, doesn't it? Everything, everything we are, everything we have, everything we're meant for, everything we're to do, everything that, that comes out of us, it's meant for Him. And that should guide us and instruct us. I have to confess a guilty pleasure. Recently, I watched... The Left Behind Trilogy, the version with Kirk Cameron, straight out of the 90s. And the reason that's a guilty pleasure is because, A, we don't share the same uh, vision of the end times as the Left Behind books. And B, as far as movies go, it's not that great. It's kind of a B movie, although somewhat impressive in certain ways. Nevertheless, I had never seen all three. And Amazon was offering them included with Prime. And so I was curious to see the most popular take on a dispensational eschatology put into movie form. And beside that, Kirk Cameron is the man. He's just a good guy. Well, it's a very dramatic series. And um, as you would expect the end times to be, very dramatic. The story's all about life on earth during the tribulation after all the Christians to that point disappear in the rapture, which is a biblically problematic doctrine. I can't get into that right now. We've talked about this before. Uh, but the rapture, that concept of, of Christians disappearing, it's, it's problematic because the Scriptures really speak of one return of Christ. And when He returns, everyone will see Him. The trumpet's going to sound. Every knee's going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. He's, he's going to establish Himself and everyone's going to know it. There's not going to be any secret about it. But at any, at any rate, in their eschatology, their version of the end time, you have Christians disappearing, and then you have this seven-year period of terrible tribulation on earth, which, by the way, it's not that bad in the movie. You could pretty much get along as normal. I mean, yeah, there's some challenges, but, you know, it's okay. And uh, here's why I'm bringing this up. I was kind of astounded to see that the gospel of Christ Jesus was not clearly presented, at least I don't remember it, being clearly presented throughout the first whole movie. And so you've got these people living and they're, and they're trying to do good, and you'd think that, well, then the most important thing they can do is share Christ, but they actually go about trying to disrupt the Antichrist's work. Anyway, you know, just... Uh, that's just problematic. But, but the gospel, Jesus Christ, given for sinners, sacrificed and raised, and all who trust him are forgiven. Kirk Cameron even becomes a Christian, and I don't believe the gospel is clearly presented. I'm sorry, his, his character becomes a Christian. I don't think the gospel is clearly presented to his character. 
And I think that can be instructive. I mean, this is this whole big production and it's, it's meant to do with the most important things and yet Christ Jesus is, is not exalted. Believe it or not, this is how many Christians think of and live out the Christian life. It's somewhat Christless. He's kind of sprinkled on at the end. And this is how churches fail. It's how missions gets off track. If we don't have Christ Jesus at the center of who we are, we have nothing. This is who we are. We are disciples of, we are followers of, we are the subjects of, we're the friends of, we're the subjects of Christ Jesus. For the Christian, everything begins and ends with Jesus, who he is and what he has done. That is who we are, and that includes fellowship. Can you imagine fellowship without Christ at the center? Well, it's not fellowship. Let me take a couple of minutes and establish this from Scripture. I want us to see that all of the Scripture, the entire Bible, is about Jesus Christ. And if the entire Bible, God's revelation, is about Jesus Christ, then that's what we're about, what we should be about, and it certainly is what fellowship needs to be about. So think about the whole story of Scripture, the whole story of redemption, all of it pointing to Christ Jesus, right? So, so you have the fall of man into sin in Genesis chapter 3. And right there, from the promise of God that Eve's offspring, the son of Eve, the son of, of man, would crush the serpent's head, which happens all the time, right? Uh, people go around, the, the children of the woman, the woman gives life, the children of women crush the, the heads of snakes all over the earth through all of human history, but all of it's pointing to one main head crushing, and that's Jesus crushing the devil's head. You get this promise back in Genesis 3, right at the beginning, pointing to the great Redeemer. On to the choosing of Noah, to the choosing of Noah to save some of the completely rebellious, completely rebellious human race. God's going to pour out his wrath. His wrath will be poured out in an irresistible fashion. No one will be able to resist it. There will be no resistance. Except for those inside the ark. God chooses Noah to build that ark and he puts the family in there. Only those inside that ark come through the wrath of God. This is early in Genesis, but it's a picture of the ultimate final judgment that's to come. And only those in Jesus Christ will be saved through the outpoured wrath of God. Only those. 
It goes on to the choosing of Abram, who would be the father of a people. Humanity has rebelled against God, so God chooses one man, and He's going to create him as Father Abraham. And that nation will be different. There'll be a peculiar people on the face of the earth, and they will proclaim God upon the earth and be His light to all the nations. And, and the whole world will be blessed through this nation. The world was blessed. They could see. And and Israel at its best pointed to God and his righteousness as they they reigned from Jerusalem, David and Solomon in their splendor. But the real blessing of Israel comes through the birth of the Savior, Jesus Christ, a king who reigns on the eternal Mount Zion, and that all that go to him will be saved goes on and on to the establishing of the people Israel, as I mentioned, ultimately. But even before that, right, they go to Egypt and they're enslaved there, but God takes them through. He takes them through the Red Sea, which is like a baptism. He takes them to Mount Sinai and He he gives them the bread. It's like coming to the Lord's table. He gives them manna in the wilderness and, and, and they come to Mount Sinai and God gives them His righteous decrees and teaches them what righteousness is through the Ten Commandments and the other laws. And He makes them a nation that all the world is supposed to be blessed through. And this goes on and on. And, and I won't take time to keep going through the prophets, through John the Baptist, who's really the last of the Old Testament prophets, and to the ministry of Jesus himself, where the sick are healed, the blind can see, and the lame walk again. And the good news is preached to even the poor, even people like us. All of it pointing to Jesus. All of it pointing to Jesus. All of it pointing to Jesus. At the crucifixion, Jesus says it's finished, and the curtain in the temple is torn. The separation from God, between God and man, is gone in Christ. The church explodes on the face of the earth, expands throughout to the ends of the earth all the way to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, to this very room where you and I sit under the teaching of the Word of God and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed again. It goes on and on, all the way through Revelation, where the living creatures and the 24 elders throw themselves down before the Lamb standing as though slain and shout about Christ Jesus. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Can you see? All of the Scriptures point to Jesus Christ. Now when... Quay mentioned the Explore course. When we teach the Explore course, we try to make this point to everyone who becomes a member of Crossway. We want everyone to know this coming in, that we're about Christ Jesus. And so we want Christ, who He is and what He's done, to be at the center of all that we are and all that we do. And so things like our name is, is meant to highlight the centrality of Jesus and His work cross way. We're people in the way of the cross, the cross where Jesus gives himself for sinners like us. 
And we want, when we sing, we want our corporate worship to be gospel-centered. We want the words to focus on what our Lord has done for us and who He is. And there's a, there's a broad range of beautiful doctrines that, that flesh out God and His gospel and His grace to us. But we always want to keep coming back to Jesus and what He's done. And we want to, we want to sing about what He's done, who He is and what He's done. And, and a lot of times you'll notice the chorus is a response from our hearts, our rejoicing, our gratitude, our praise for His gospel work. For his saving work of us. We try to make an appeal in every sermon. Certainly to the believer to apply the grace of God to their lives. But also to the unbeliever to to put their trust in Jesus for salvation. We want our approach to personal spiritual growth to be gospel-centered. We want our approach to parenting to be gospel-centered. We want our approach, our desire for ministering to one another. Or our counseling one another or are caring for one another to start and end with Jesus Christ. Because He is all we have. Rather than listing out every single practice and value we have and then stating that we want that to be gospel-centered, we could just say it like this, gospel-centered everything. We want Jesus at the center of it all. You can always remember this one helpful summary passage If I could have the next slide, please. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And if you read this passage, it goes on to talk about how He was raised on the third day and and how He appeared to many. So witnesses saw Him. And then essentially how the church is built on Jesus, who He is, and and the testimony of the apostles that Jesus died and rose again. And so everything begins with Christ. And belonging to one another begins with belonging to Christ. So we start with Christ Jesus. But fellowship, we want to get more specific and and narrow in now, recognize that fellowship begins with Christ too. So let me explain a little further. We, we have this desire for fellowship to be gospel-centered, but it's, it's not just a desire. It's not just something that we want to add or we want to see happen. You see, real fellowship, fellowship between believers, is an actual implication. It's in logical relationship to the gospel. It's something that happens because of Christ. Fellowship with one another is something that can only happen because of Jesus. If you don't have that, if you don't have Christ, if you don't believe in Him, you can't have fellowship with one another. If you have Christ Jesus, then you will have fellowship with one another. It's logically related. Think about what the Lord has done for us. Jesus dies, and then he rises. Remember, he doesn't die for his own sin. He dies for the sins of others. And so right there from the beginning, this is a selfless act. It is the ultimate expression of love. In other words, it's it's entirely others-focused. Now, he's exalted on the cross. He's given a name above all names. 
He's coronated King of Kings, Lord of Lords, when he's lifted up on that tree and then when he rises from the tomb. But in laying down his life, he does it for others. And that, think about that, that immediately, it, it's, it's not just about him. It's, it is about him, but it brings everyone who's going to trust him along with him. It is fundamentally corporate. It's fundamentally unified. So he dies and he rises. And then everyone who calls on his name dies and rises in him. And forever, this is our reality. And we're united to him in that. The scripture even says that we're seated with him in the heavenlies. There's a reality to this that if you have Christ Jesus, you're not just here, but you're with Christ always. Even now as he's awaiting his return, there is something elevated about our existence, something ascendant about it, something beyond about it. It's the reality of our situation. And because we're united to him in a way that is spiritual and powerful and transcendent, because of that, we're united to one another in a spiritual and powerful and transcendent way. It's a way that transcends what we can see. I want you to think about this because I know it, it, it doesn't always feel that way. Think of the bonds of family. You know, it, it's so fascinating to just consider the idea that we have life. We have life, but we didn't give it to ourselves. We didn't go out and work for it. We didn't attain it. It was given to us. It's a gift. And when we were given the gift of life, we were born into a home, born to a family that we had no say over. Not one of us chose our earthly father or our earthly mother. We had no say in the matter. And no matter whether we like it or appreciate it or not, that is true about us. Who is your father? Who is your mother? These things are true about us, and we can't change it. It just is. Some of us may even struggle with that. Maybe some of us had challenging relationships with our parents. Others rejoice in that reality. They had good relationships, and they benefited from their fathers and mothers. But nonetheless, we can't change it. This is true as well, and and in an even stronger, more potent way than your familial relationships. When you belong to Jesus Christ, when you're united to Him, that bond is stronger than the reality of who you were born to on earth. Remember, all things are from Him and through Him and to Him. Your earthly parents are secondary in regard to your relationship to Christ Jesus, which is even a greater bond and stronger. Whether we feel it or not, 
That is the reality. It's that strong. And that's why fellowship with Christ, that's where our fellowship with one another, it begins with Christ himself. We're that connected to him. And therefore, fellowship with Christ and then, and then therefore fellowship with other people, it's not something we just simply add. You know, it's not like, I think my body uh, needs vitamin D. I don't have enough vitamin D. I better take some supplements. I go to the store and I buy some supplements and I put it in a place I don't forget and I begin to take that supplement. I add it to my life. I just begin supplementing. Now, Christians don't supplement with fellowship. It's core to who we are. We have to fellowship. We must fellowship. We are in fellowship with Christ. We will demonstrate that fellowship by fellowshipping with other Christians. It is the living out of our faith in Christ Jesus. You see that? It takes faith to have Christ. How do we access the grace of God? Through faith. We believe that He's the Son of God. And in believing in His name and confessing Him and turning from our sin and being baptized in His name, all those expressions of faith were brought into relationship with Jesus Christ, that can, a bond that cannot be broken. It's the same way in fellowship with others. It takes faith now. I belong to Christ Jesus. I'm in fellowship with Him. Let me believe that therefore I am in fellowship with my brothers and sisters and let me behave accordingly. I thought this quote from A.W. Tozer might be a little small, but I think you'll be able to read it. I thought it was helpful. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Tozer there speaking to the reality of our unity in Christ. And because we're unified in Him, we're unified with one another. But He's also speaking to how we grow in this unity and cultivate it and demonstrate it on this earth. It's not so much by making sure that we're just unified with each other, but no, no, no. By making sure we're unified with Christ and by being in tune to Him, we come in tune with one another. See, fellowship flows from the gospel. It's an implication. It's a logical relationship. And that's why it's important to recognize where there's no fellowship. If, if there's a lack of fellowship, there's probably a lack of gospel clarity or gospel application in your life. Because where the gospel is, there will be fellowship there. Fellowship with Christ and fellowship with those who know Christ. And this is a good thing to do, to begin to evaluate, what is it that I have with other people? What do I really have with them? What do I have with people outside the church? What do I have with unbelievers? What do I have with Christians? Sometimes I hear Christians say, oh, I get along far better with unbelievers than with believers. Hold on, time out. 
That sounds like a problem in our understanding. I, I know it's meant as a criticism of the church, of God's people, of what Christians are like. It's a big mistake. The problem is someone is not understanding what Christ has done for them. The problem might be, do they, do they know Christ Jesus? Because if we're tuned to Christ, we're going to have fellowship with one another. Where the gospel is, there will be fellowship between people. Well, let's take a quick look here at a couple of passages to make sure that we're grounding this idea that fellowship is an implication of the gospel, that it flows from the gospel. I want to make sure we're grounding that in the scriptures, okay? So take a look here at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now, we often look at this passage, and because we believe in election, we believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation. In fact, it's because of God's election that grace is so gracious. If God doesn't elect us, then, then grace isn't that gracious. And so often when we look at this passage, we're looking at it from the responsiveness or the non-responsiveness angle. We're basically, we're pointing out and saying, look, see, we're dead. And, and when you're in your trespasses and sins, you're, you're like a dead man. And dead people don't respond. They can't respond. They're dead. And so God makes us alive in Christ. And that's true. That's right and good. It's, it's a powerful truth. But we also see this. We also see that the first principle for us in our becoming alive, it happens by way of union. It happens by way of relationship. It happens by way of deep fellowship. How are we saved? How are we made alive? How are we brought to life? We're brought to life in another person who's been brought to life in Jesus. It's relationship with the one true alive one. Because he's, think about this, because he is life itself. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the what? The life. Because he's life itself. When we come in contact with him, we're made alive. We're made alive in him. And that's why this says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive. And it uses this word, together. God made us alive together with Christ. Consider the power of fellowship, where it begins. For us, it begins in making us alive, giving us life in Christ Jesus. Now think about that in relation to one another. We have Christ. We share Christ. Guess what we do for one another in fellowship? We enliven one another in Christ Jesus because we're, we're representative of Christ and we have the Holy Spirit in us. And when we engage one another, we stir up, we make one another alive in Him. That is something the world can't do and it's glorious. 
Think of when your heart is stirred up and hopeful in, in the Lord Jesus and hopeful in this world, hopeful in spite of all that may be going on, hopeful even though there are dark and difficult times and dark nights, even in those times. Because of Christ Jesus making us alive in Him. And then when we get together and we encourage one another, we make one another alive in Christ as well. You see, before we can have fellowship with one another, we fellowship first with Christ Jesus. This was previously impossible. One more passage, a little further down in the chapter, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. If I could have that next passage, please. Thank you. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're members one with another. You see, fellowship with one another flows from fellowship with Christ. And the gospel allows us to cultivate a deeper, more meaningful relationship with one another. We're not strangers anymore. And we're not just citizens, although that's glorious in one sense. We're citizens of, a, of His nation. We're also members of His household. Members of His family. Belonging to one another begins with belonging to Christ. If I could have that next slide. There you go. And then if I could have the next slide, which is our third point. Cultivate the conviction. Did I do that? Yes, I did. Okay, thank you. Cultivate the conviction. Oh, well, what is conviction? What is conviction? Well, conviction is deeply held belief that works its way out in application. And conviction is that whole idea of being a doer of the Word and not just a hearer, right? We, we all have this category when, when if someone does what they're supposed to do, oh, we, we appreciate that person, don't we? We love that person. We say that person's faithful or that person is diligent or we can count on that person or that person keeps their word. It's, it's one of the most glorious things when someone consistently does what they're supposed to do. And then the opposite is true, right? When someone doesn't do what they're supposed to do, they become a burden. They, they become someone you can't rely on, someone you have to check up on, someone that you, when you're, you're counting on what they were supposed to do, you're thinking to yourself, I don't know if it's going to be done. We'll find out when we get there. And when we ourselves are like that, when we're unreliable, we, we feel that. We, we, we feel the, the negative of that. We feel the condemnation of it. We want to grow to be more diligent. It's that integrity. It's, it's bringing it together. It's being a doer of the Word and not just to hear. That's what it means to have conviction. It's one thing to say, I believe something. It's another to live in such a way that demonstrates that belief. And so that's true of fellowship as well. We know that fellowship begins with Christ Jesus and it begins with the gospel and, and, and we've got it. It's just, it's ours. We have fellowship with Christ and therefore we have fellowship with one another. But, but do we do that? I can't help but commend you and thank you for your example in this. Over all these years, Crossway churches at small groups where we've meant to be, sought to be, worked to be intentional in, in fellowship. You're doing it. 
And even outside of our small groups, there's much fellowship happening in the life of the church and even beyond with other believers. Praise the Lord for all the fellowship that is happening. But we know that there are some, and we know that there are some times when many of us, or even all of us, fail to cultivate the conviction of fellowship as we ought to. Let's keep in mind, God has a concern that Christians live in fellowship. Look what He's done to achieve it. He's given His Son and starts salvation by unifying us in Him. It's a deep fellowship that we share. So therefore, what should we do in response? Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 to 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is such a powerful passage. You know, you look at that and you think, you wouldn't necessarily think that the body would build its, its own self up. And yet, part of what this is saying is the way God has made us, because of what He's done for us in Christ Jesus, and what we have, the capability we have in the Holy Spirit, that when we're doing what we ought to be doing, we grow mature. We grow strong. And what is it that we ought to be doing? Well, this whole thing is, is talking about the joints and being held together and, and then in that being equipped and, and, the, and then each part working, uh, working properly, doing what it's supposed to be doing, and therefore the body builds itself up. So we see the effect that the body grows and builds itself up. As we fellowship with one another, we get stronger. We become more mature. What a glorious thing. I want to ask Josh and the band to come, and we're going to partake together in just a minute here, come to the Lord's table. And as they're coming, I just want to point out a couple of notes. We really need to view fellowship as a major means of God's grace to us so that we can grow. So we're talking about cultivating a conviction Cultivating that conviction for fellowship. Start with this. I need to grow in Christ Jesus. And therefore, I need what God has provided. I need to have a conviction to be in fellowship with other believers, which we're going to talk more about over the coming weeks. I need to have that conviction because I need to grow. And God has given fellowship so that I can grow. So let me take my role, let me take my part and work to grow together. You see, belonging to one another begins with belonging to Christ Jesus. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.